Hello everybody, I'm Fox from Grapple Arcade. It's been a long time, I'll admit that straight off the bat, <laughs> I haven't been around much. I'm joined by my humble yet bodacious, uh, <laughs> sensual, um, larger than life but smaller than a calamity. <laughs> okay, I'll take that. Yeah. Pablo. How you doing, Pablo? I'm alright, how are you? Glad to see you back on uh, BBG Wrestling. Yeah, it's been a while, hasn't it? It's uh, it's been a, a canny long time since I've done any of this podding malarkey, and what better way to return than to introduce the fine listeners to our brand new show, the Cello Toys Podcast. Hey, fanfare! Yes, we're uh, teaming oh. up Cello Toys to do an official podcast for them, um, and that brought me back out from underneath the rocks. <laughs> Quite understandably, as a Hasbro collector and aficionado indeed yeah i mean to be honest i've been off wrestling off pods off everything altogether because i focus on a few of their little uh business ventures i think it's probably best to call it little bits and bobs that i've had going on a few of the projects um but after six or seven months i've come to terms with the fact that those things whilst they're lots of fun i just miss wrestling a bit so i've decided to dip my toe back in for this one with yourself pet <laughs> and you know the our relationship with Chella goes back a little while as well. We've interviewed uh, the people involved in Chella, and they've we, you know, we've gotten along with them very very well. And uh, you know they've seen enough in what we do to want to have us be a part of what they do in some form, which is very very fun to be even remotely connected to the action figure world. You know, it, it as a child, if you'd have told me that you know was going to be even remotely involved with a company that was going to make some figures of people that I've always wanted. Um, and we get to talk about it in an official capacity. Like I would never have believed you. Completely. And they're a wonderful bunch of people as well. Let's, let's get that straight up. You know, yeah. um, we've done previous shows with the, with their, both Charles and Ella, and we've even done an interview with Brian Tipping, Mr. Tippy, the artist designer for Chella. And uh, they've all three of them have been on the show several times now. So it's it's a wonderful thing to to do something quite official with them rather than just getting them on for an interview and a chat. It's nice to be able to do what will hopefully be a long running series. Fingers crossed, it'll all go to plan, <laughs> and we won't screw up and get shut down on day one. Uh, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so uh, well, let's crack on. And we thought, what better way to do that than to firstly have a very quick look at series one that's been announced so far by Chella. I know the last time we chatted with them, um, we were at a certain point, I think we just interviewed the Blue Meanie following his action figure release with yes. Chella. And Josh um, as well. And Josh, obviously, as well, yes. Blue yeah. Meanie and Josh Chernoff. And Series 1 uh, consists of both Blue Meanie and Josh Chernoff. It also has Ethan Page. Um, it also has, obviously, Nick Aldis, who was the first figure that they released. Then, more recently, the announcements of the Japanese legend Hayabusa, the other Japanese legend, Bull Nakano, and obviously the one and only Dynamite Kid. I mean, what a cracking first series of action figures and a bit of a range, something for everybody as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, something for different age ranges as well. So even if you've never collected figures, or I think this, this is the exact type of range of names that would have someone dip their toes back into collecting, even if they just wanted one figure. Um you know, there really is something for everyone. I'm I'm most excited, I've got to say, about the Bull Nakano figure. Like, that's so out. The thing is about some of these names, they're so out of left field, and you're just like, bloody hell. Like, you know, your mind is blown every time that they announce a name. Uh, the announcements are very fun. The announcements are so fun. It's 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 one of those things where you, you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what kind of characters are going to come out of the woodwork. We'll talk about Series 2 very, very quickly. Um, because obviously we will be jumping into a particular format, which we'll introduce the listeners to in a second. But so far for Series 2, obviously today, and we were recording this episode several days behind the day that it's released, but as of today, you can now go and pre-order the Adam Bomb figure. Ooh, I mean, that's exciting. Literally blown. <laughs> um, Adam Bomb. We've, uh, we've also had teasers of what seems to be some very formidable characters in the form of giant haystacks and also Big Daddy. Now, I mean, that is, that, that's another level of joy. That, that, that's, as you said before, something for everybody. But 
really I, cool to be able to fit them in the line. Yeah, can I just say about the Adam Bomb as well? Like, yeah. I never had access to the Adam Bomb original Hasbro. It mm-hmm. goes for so much money now, it's ridiculous. I was so happy when Classic Superstars eventually released one. But, you know, I, I just don't have the money, basically. You know what I mean? To go out and buy an Adam Bomb, especially Mark, and especially in today's marketplace and everything. Yeah. The fact that they're not just making an Adam Bomb, but they're making them in that late 93 neon green mm-hmm. outfit, which I love. Um, and it comes with r- removable goggles as well. They've really went all out on it. And uh, the length, that's the thing about these as well, is that they are true to Hasbro's in terms yeah. of the style and execution. Uh, but you can tell who they are as well, even though, you know, because they're not meant to be real scan because it's a Hasbro style figure. You know, it's not meant to be photographic, you know, likeness and stuff like that. It's stylized and Chella do it incredibly well, I've got to say. And le- legitimately 10 times cheaper to purchase. <laughs> 18 quid. You it can helps you the, a bomb figure for. That's true. It helps that the UK as well, which is yeah. wonderful. <laughs> helps a massive amount. They've also obviously announced as well the sort of seven-inch scale uh, Dynamite oh. Kid figure, um, yeah. which is amazing, and obviously the Sabu figure as well, which they've announced recently. Now, what I will say is we'll touch on those at another point because mm. obviously we're going to be focusing more so on, on, on the Hasbro size for this particular episode based on who we're going to talk about next. But what I will say is in relation to the Adam Bomb figure that you mentioned uh, and any of the characters that we've talked about, all you need to do is have a little think back to the Nick Holders figure, and there's already been at least two to three of the variants of it released in short runs by Chella. Mm-hmm. So the Crockett Cup one, for example, there was the gold exclusive one, um, which goes to show they're quite happy with the idea of making multiple costumes for different characters. Yeah, That's and then- something I'm very excited about. Yeah, and you got to bear in mind as well, yes, it's a big range of names, but these names aren't just picked out of a hat. Like, Fort has went into these names in a lot of passion as well. You know, Chella are fans of the figures that they're making. Um, and, you know, great working relationships to the point where, like you say, there can be variants and uh, obscure costumes, which I'm all about the obscure costumes. Definitely, and more of them, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, what we will say is if you want to pre-order any of the figures that we've been mentioning there, head over right now to cellotoys.net. Mm, yeah, the Grebel Arcade. Hands off the merchandise. Dig it. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, retro style wrestling action figures from cellotoys.net. Bring the legends, the present, and the future. But now we're going to be chatting about a particular character that Cheller have announced. Pre-order isn't available yet. I'm sure it soon will be, though. Mr. Haku. Get in. Get in. (laughs) Talk about one of the, the, maybe the main gap of like Hasbro style figures Haku would definitely be it for someone who was used consistently well had different looks and is just one of the biggest I mean Andre there's gonna you can now have a colossal connection like yeah. how great is that um Same. I'm I'm so excited about the Haku I mean that is all the names have been great but as a specific WWF fan that's just next level for me like that's wonderful it's my favourite announcement today, and it's no offence to any of the people, it's just, it just caught me so off guard, and I was like, oh my goodness. <laughs> um, mine and everybody else's uh, favourite uh, legit hard bastard. Just <laughs> <laughs> solid. Um, but what we're going to do, as we'll do on this episode and future episodes coming up, we're going to do a deep dive, and this particular deep dive is in fact going to be about Haku. Uli Uli Fifita was born and raised in the island of Tonga, and like many strong, solid, rock-eyed, massive, giant youngsters on his <laughs> island, he started off his sporting journey playing rugby union, believe it or not. Um, rugby's a huge sport over there in, in, uh, on the island, and it's it's um, it's adored by many, including, at the time, the king. You know, it's just a huge kind of, a huge um, traditional sport, I think, and it still is today. They're always... 
uh, competing on an international level. And he started quite young. Um, the thing was, though, after he'd had his fill of that, he, along with about five or six others from the island, decided to move to Japan. The reason why he went to Japan, along with future tag team partner Barbarian, believe it or not, right? they went to train in my favourite sport, sumo wrestling. Really? Indeed, yes. Okay. They went to Japan to train as sumo wrestlers. Now, um, Haku was named uh, Fukunoshima, as you get traditionally, you get named based on your heritage and different things about you in sumo wrestling. They give you a name that will suit you and kind of, it's like a gimmick name. Everybody gets one pretty much mm. when you become a sumo. Uh, and he, believe it or not, made it all the way up to the third highest division in sumo wrestling, which is the, the Makashita division. So at the very top, you've got the Makuchi and you've got underneath that the jury or they used to, you know, your top two divisions, your Premier League and your Championship kind of thing in football. Your Makashita is the next one down. And that's kind of like your proven ground. He's worked all of his way up like through several several different divisions to get to that point. Now what you need to know about the Mashika division um is that it's the sort of final test, so to speak. It's like the sort of guardian gate. It's it's a really difficult place. You've got people from the top that have been demoted Find, finding the feet again in that in that um, division. You've got people such as Haku who've got something to prove. They've walked through the earlier divisions to get to that point, but now they really need to prove themselves because the reality is um, you earn kind of a small allowance living in the, the Makashita division that he made it to. You earn, it's, it's okay money, but the whole point is that you want to be earning enough the next stage because you're going to be going up if you get promoted to the Jurio division and that's where the money is that's where you start getting big bucks right now the reality is as well linked to that at the Mikashita division and all divisions below it you're not just earning a small allowance but you're also the stable boy you're carrying out all of the chores the stable house cooking the cleaning looking after the the proper prosumos you 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 you're basically um in training up to the point of the jurio division so the Makashita division and below you you as i say you're like a stable boy you're doing as you're kind of told and you're running around making sure that everybody else is looked after and well fed etc cetera, etc cetera. so you're doing a hell of a lot of work for no money to prove yourself mm. when you go up to the jurio division which is this division that he would have moved to next then you start making the proper money you start getting a, a monthly salary you're no longer a stable boy, but the stable boys who were there do all the chores for you and look after you, do all your cooking for you, your cleaning for you. So you, all of a sudden you become the king, literally King Haku, he would have become. He would have been like a top dog in that in that air stable. Um, and the bond with the stable master, who's kind of like the manager, just imagine Mr. Fuji <laughs> looking after a stable, right? Mm. Um, a, stable of, a stable of fighters all living in a house together. Mr. Fuji, you start gaining more of a respectful on par relationship with him rather than him being kind of like a dad, like like telling you what to do figure. He's more like the respect grows because now you're at that pro, that super pro level where you bring in a lot more um, respect to the stable mm. uh, because of the position that you're at. Um, at one point, because of that, we could have... No word of a lie, seen Barbarian being a stable boy for Haku. <laughs> <laughs> because Barbarian was a, he was actually undefeated in sumo in the lower divisions. That doesn't uh, shock me, to be fair. Yeah. I can't imagine Haku ever losing any kind of well, shoot fight. So, but yeah. Haku did really, really well, but Barbarian was undefeated, like in his lower oh, wow. divisions. Um, okay. so, so, Barbarian and Haku were living in the same house, in the same stable um, during sumo. And the problem was that Haku, sorry, Barberi never made it out of some of the lower divisions um, because of reoccurring injuries. It was the only thing that held him back that he was always injured. So he couldn't get the promotions at the same time as Haku. Mm. So he was held back a little bit. But once Haku, if Haku had made it up to that Jurio division, that championship division, and Barbarian wasn't there, Barbarian would have literally been scrubbing Haku's feet for him. <laughs> <laughs> Which is crackers. Anyway, point being, uh, so Haku was actually fighting in the, the Makashita division, as I mentioned before. 
Uh, as I mentioned, both him and Barbarian were living in the same house. It was the, uh, the I believe it was the Asayama house, the Asayama stable house. Uh, the problem was the stable master who took those guys in, that group of uh, six, um, six chaps from the island into his stable, he passed away. Um, and there was a big, huge, massive controversy that kicked up um, in late 1976, I believe it was. 1976 is when the, when the stable master passed away, when everything kind of went awry, because there was a dispute over who was going to take over as the stable master in that house. Right. Now, some of the Tongans who were in that house preferred bloke number one to take the job, but bloke number two actually got the job. And because those two were arguing lords to try and get the job and fighting, et cetera, et cetera, um, he didn't take too kindly to the Tongans because they didn't obviously have his back when it came to choosing him in the first place. Yeah. What happened next was shocking. The Sumo Association decided to kick all of the Tongans out of the stable and forcing them out of Sumo altogether. Oh, wow. Shocking. Like, really, really sketch. Mm. Um it made no sense at the time, seemed very corrupt at the time, so much so that the Sumo Association officials had to fly to Tonga and explain themselves to the Tongan king at the time. <laughs> which is obviously which is obviously absolutely nuts and crackers. <laughs> the worst part of all for Haku, that he was in hospital with an injury at the time, as this went down, he never at one point ever expressed an opinion whatsoever on who the new stable master should be, anything like that. So he's purely guilty by association, even though there's nothing to be really guilty about. He was guilty by association. They tried to appeal the situation, and the, and the Sumo Association just said, nah, you're not coming back. Goodbye. You're done with Sumo. And it was like, what on earth? So there's been a lot of conspiracies over the years, whether it was the kind of the whole traditionalist Japan situation of wanting only pure Japanese fighters because they can see this new group of foreigners coming in to start and, and they're making some waves, you know, mm. um, make it difficult for people. Because Sumo used to be a lot more like that. It's a lot more, well, somewhat more liberal these days with who can enter Sumo um, and who can rise to the top. Um, but back in the 70s, absolutely not the case at all. You know, it, it, it existed, but it, was, it wasn't really liked by the sumo association that's fair to say are any of his early sumo matches on tape not that i've seen and usually only even in these days you, you'd struggle to come across anything that's below the jurio division right so back in the day the makashita division that he's in that was the second tier division believe it or not uh, it's only in current forms that is now classed as division three but Back then, in the 70s, there wasn't that much of it going around, especially accessible to us over here. Um, and I don't honestly know how much was filmed in the 70s, because obviously these days you can get it through the um, NHK, I believe it is, um, official site, and there's a lot of people streaming it and stuff. But it's it's very difficult to get hold of in the West to just watch naturally, you know. Mm. But um, I've, I have found some pictures of Haku, which I'll post on uh, Twitter and of Barbarian as young teenagers. They were both only about 15 or 16 when they joined Sumo. I would love to see those pictures. Right. Absolutely. Haku at the time, I believe he was 5'11 at the age of 16 and Barbarian was just over 6 foot. <laughs> I can believe that, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, both strapping lads. But yeah, that's the situation. Let's just think about that for a second. If Haku had made it to that Juryo division where he was getting a proper full monthly salary, because he was on par two, you know, he was that it was a clear avenue for him to carry on his winning ways. He was injured at the time, but all sumos get injured quite frequently, you know. Uh, it's one of those kind of sports. It's very hard hitting. Um, so if he'd have got promoted to the Juryo division, which was the next logical step for him to do within the next few months, he could legitimately have maybe not even stepped foot in a professional wrestling ring because he wouldn't have ever needed to. He'd have made a very solid career and a very, very good solid wage in sumo. Yeah, I was going to ask that. Like, how far could he have went? And he, it seems like he could have just done it until he chose not to instead well, of being forced out of it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. he, he, he was forced out of it. And he, and bear in mind, he he got promoted through all of those earlier divisions. He, he was a young kid uh, and he only started sumo in 1974 and was kicked out in 1976. So he was only in it for two years. And he yeah, made that's... big waves, as, as did some of the other Tongans in the house. But he, <laughs> especially Barbarian, would have if he wasn't injured as much as he was because um, he was undefeated. 
is he still talked about now in those like circles? Like the yeah. history of him? I mean, if you speak to the right people, the thing is, it's it's obviously difficult to find people who do a lot of crossover between the two things because sumo fans would just see him as another sumo. And right. obviously, you imagine how many people have taken part in sumo over the years, especially since the 70s, talking decades, you know. Mm. Um, now, it's the kind of thing where the, the most notable that people speak about is somebody that we've covered in depth and I've spoken about before being John Tenter, Earthquake. Yeah. Um, and how amazing he was before he quit um, and how many strides he was making. And, you know, the dream match would obviously have been to a wrestling fan. Let's see Haku versus Earthquake in a sumo match. <laughs> but um, it, it typically was very unlikely to have happened because between Earthquake and, and Haku, because I thought about this for a bit. I was like, could they have crossed over at any point if they'd have both stayed in sumo professionally? <laughs> mm. um, Haku left in 76 Intenta didn't start sumo until 85 i believe it right. was so you're talking nine years saying that if haku had made his full-time career there and dominated and did really well the only time you're going to stop fighting in sumo is if you're either not very good at it and you start plummeting you need a different career path or if you get to yokozuna level which is the absolute elite but you start doing crap you have to formally retire from sumo you can't just be demoted um so other than that, or severe injury, he might have stayed in for a bit long, a bit longer. Um, and but saying that, John Tennant would have started at the lowest division, forced his way all the way up. It might have taken a few years or so. So you're talking about a good 13 or 14 years of both of them being in sumo until they might have met each other kind of thing. Yeah. They must so, have talked about it when they were in WWE, especially when they started doing shows for Tenru, who was a noted mm. sumo as well in 91, which we'll get into. But they must have had those chats, I'd imagine. Even going into WCW when they were working together with like Dungeon of Doom and all that kind of stuff. Um, Absolutely. You, you've got to think. You've got to think. It, it makes you wonder how many more guys at the time, especially uh, non-Americans, because obviously when you think of a... a, a wrestling wwf from the 70s and 80s you tend to think more american uh you know mm. wrestlers as such yeah. as, a, as a rule of thumb so the guys who kind of you know dipped the toe in and came from different lands came from different countries and wrestled for vince senior how many of them maybe did dip the toe in with sumo um it's something i'm going to be obviously doing a massive deep dive in me on time <laughs> Because I've talked about sumo quite a lot right now. <laughs> for, uh, there is a whole there is a whole series on sumo on BBG Wrestling which you've hosted. There is indeed. If anybody's interested in learning about sumo from the very beginnings, including the rules, everything you need to know as a novice, if you've got any interest at all in sumo, um, head over to our series called Sumo Drop. I also cover um, the the every other month they do their big huge tournaments at their top division. So I cover that and feel free to go and check it out. But yes, uh, moving on from, from Sumo, because when he left, it I think it was like sort of September-ish of 76. Um, you're talking quite a long time between 76 when he left Sumo and 86 when he started at WWF. Mm. Uh, and in that time, as you briefly touched upon there, and as I'll briefly touch upon now, we joined the AJPW, uh, All Japan. Uh, which was also home to former sumo wrestlers at the time, turned pro wrestlers, um, Ishikawa and Tenryu. So, yeah, both of those guys were also originally sumos, turned to All Japan, and that's what allured Haku into uh, All Japan. So he started his, uh, his wrestling career over there in All Japan. And um, in between then and joining WWF, I'll briefly mention as well, he wrestled over in, in Montreal for... Uh, Lit International. Uh, did you enjoy my uh, accent there? It was great. I, I felt like I was there for a second. Lit, um, which was uh, co-founded by Andre the Giant, funnily enough. So there's the there's the early, very start of Andre and Haku's relationship. Haku was wrestling at Andre's um, promotion in Canada. That's fun. So, yeah, he went over there and he had feuds with uh, Dino Bravo. He was doing some tag team stuff where he was with Butch Reed until Butch turned on him. Uh, they were hinting at the idea at one point of Haku turning face. I'm not quite sure if that ever came to fruition or not, but it was always kind of like, you know, carrot was dangled for it. And then he uh, buggered off down to Puerto Rico for WWC. Um, and he did really well down there, you know, especially in sort of tag team competitions, which doesn't really surprise us when we go, we, we find out what his actual career went on to be. 
I've got to say, you've got to be a bit of a hard bastard to wrestle in Puerto Rico oh, in the I, 80s. You worked against Invader, for example, you know, and a lot of oh, no. as well. Yeah. So. Well, even, even, I mean, besides that, when he was in Montreal working with Joel LaDuke, there, I mean, God, talk about a match where I would want to see just two hard bastards just brain each other for a bit. Haku and Joel LaDuke. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, if I could ever find any footage, I mean, he, Joel LaDuke had a cup. Couple of WWF matches, but never crossed paths with Haku. Uh, but God, I would love to see them just <laughs> just beat the piss out of each other. <laughs> there you go, listeners. Go and check out some Haku in Canada because it's uh, it'll be special and it'll and be it was if you, an, if you like was, hard hard hitting fighting. Go and check it out. And he was still under the name King uh, King Tonga at this point as well, wasn't he? Indeed, and it carried on for a while. He went down to, as we said, there WWC. Puerto Rico. He did quite well. He partnered with uh, El Gran Apollo for a while, um, and he, I think, he won the uh, was it the North American Tag Championships with him. But then also teamed with uh, Hercules Hernandez, who we obviously know in WWF, and he actually won the, the World Tag Team titles with Hercules Hernandez in Puerto Rico. But he also ended up taking the Puerto Rican Heavyweight Championship as well. So mm-hmm. he, he's quite accomplished in in Puerto Rico. If you follow Haku, if you go back to the seventies and eighties to go and check out his uh, Canadian and Puerto Rican wrestling. He's accomplished, man. He had some gold strapped to him. Yeah, and and he's one of those who was lucky that he went into WWF in 86 and they could have just changed his gimmick and made him, you know, something completely different. Luckily, he was one of those that had enough of a reputation that you could not change him. Like, <laughs> what, oh. what, you, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Like, put a clown mask on him or something like that. But, <laughs> Um, and and yep. it's just amazing though seeing them in those different territories. How many people? I mean, it happens with everyone, but it, you know, specifically with Haku here, you know, teaming up with former like later tag team partners early on, and some of the people he was in the Heenan family with, and all that kind of thing. It's always fun to see crossover yeah. before it happens, sort of thing. Even going back to you know playing rugby with Barbarian yeah. in, <laughs> in Tonga, and then going to. Uh, sumo school with them and living in a sumo house with them it's absolutely amazing um and weirdly as well just on a finishing note at wwc there i mentioned before that whilst he was up in montreal he had a bit of a well, quite a long lasting feud all the way through his pre-wwf career with dino bravo he ended up tag teaming with dino bravo for a while as well in puerto rico <laughs> which is crackers but yeah and then 1986 came around quite quickly didn't it pablo well yeah he um it- Anyone who I feel came into WWF during that early Hulkamania time, you know, it was obviously someone who was high on the list and highly recommended to Vince. Um, and a lot of wrestlers who came in that time had a, a huge uh, history and had credentials and stuff like that. So it just made sense to have someone like uh, Haku come in as King Tonga uh, in the WWF at that time. And, um, Immediately, actually, I think a lot of people don't realize that he came in the WWF as a face and was pushed pretty yeah. heavily in his uh, first year. I mean, there's there's footage of it out there when Big John Studd was doing his body slam challenge and Heenan um, said, you know, whoever can slam him would get 15 grand. Obviously, no one ever got the 15 grand. Um, <laughs> you know, um, uh, King Tonga. Well, I suppose arguably um, Andre did in a way and started throwing it out of the crowd. <laughs> Until yeah, but until Heenan nicked it back off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one of the best to show that. Um, so yeah, King Tonga. I mean, talk about getting someone over in a night. You know, if you'd never seen them before, it was kind. You know, this they've done it with people that did it with Luger and Ahmed Johnson on Yokozuna much later, very early on. This King Tonga did the impossible and slammed Big John Stud. And it set up a a bit of a feud when Haku and Tama, well, sorry, King Tonga uh, and Tama became the uh, the Islanders uh, a little bit later on because King Tonga, it was kind of a weird thing because King Tonga was at the WrestleMania 2 Battle Royal and he was kind of, um, this was pre-Islanders and uh, Tama was uh, wrestling under a different name at that point. And then they decided to put them together and change both of their names. Now there, there are, I mean, you see some of this on the network and it's quite funny that Vince does not know how to pronounce wrestlers names early on. So they were calling Tama with an O instead of an A and Haku was like, Heiku and stuff like that, yeah. you know, Haiku and Tomo. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tomo. 
And the, and the, the thing is, though, it wasn't like a big, like, we are now unveiled as, like, the Islanders. They just come out one week and they had different names. That was basically it. Yeah. Um, and they were a fan favourite team. And they didn't do a whole lot on TV, but in terms of, like, the sort of nationally syndicated shows, but those Madison Square Garden shows and Boston Garden shows, they would be the team, kind of the very underrated team that would be out for 20 minutes having the the workhorse match against whoever yeah. the you know the other team were i mean don't get me wrong the dream team were great but like sort of in terms of those 20 minute matches it would be them against like say the moon dogs or like the more sort of like established teams that had been working together for like a long time and you can always count on them to have a really good match um, and they did actually win a battle royal at uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, for I mean, I'm guessing the fifty grand was not real. Um, no, well, you know, it might have been million dollar man's fifty grand. You know, it's just <laughs> banknotes with his face on it. But it just shows you though they had some plans for them. Whether they would have put the tag belts on them or not is uncertain. But Tama, for a few years after you know teaming with Snooker and who was like the biggest star in '82 that they had. Um, you know, talk about a launching pad, they will have had some kind of, you know, idea for uh, for the Islanders at the time. But then during that time, teams like the Can-Am Connection, who I guess are more prototypical what Vince might want in a team, um, you know, I, they kind of came along and I guess kind of took over certain teams roles like the killer bees and people like that and they got sort of pushed to the moon until tom zeng left but yes. during that time it made sense because there were so many like top face teams at this point to turn the islanders heel and that was a one night deal where heenan was being very secretive throughout and then all of a sudden he introduces the islanders and uh that was probably the best thing for them at that point um because you know, Haku's a very quiet person. And, you know, Tama's very... He's more over the top and more of the talker. Uh, but he could also come across very arrogant as well as a character. And it, it really worked for him. And Tama's actually one of the more underrated heels of that time. And then when... You know, because he could be arrogant because you've got big lad Haku stood behind you ready to yeah. take someone's head off at a moment's notice. And I've got to say, Jesse Ventura was so good at putting over especially Haku with that kick with that first yeah. kick he yeah. really made a big deal of that and I don't it wasn't even necessarily his finisher I mean he would be beat people with it as I'm going to get to um but Jesse Ventura when he really liked and respected someone and I, I'm sure Haku had the respect of everyone in that look I mean look who he teamed up with for the tag titles Andre the Giant yeah. um you know I think it's safe to say that his respect was universal. And this is why as well, he's just one of those names that, because when he, he makes appearances now and he'll get the pop of the night. So well, it's, it's the legendary stories that everybody also associates him that wrestlers have told the fable of how hard he is. Yeah. How, how, how legit solid he is. And we're not going to harp on about that too much because it's, because it's, everybody knows it. There's no point. <laughs> he's just, he's legitimately solid. There's no two ways about it. And you've got to be, to, to, to take part in sumo, you have to be because you are a whipping boy for the first majority of your time there, let mm. alone the fact he's built like a, you know, proverbial brick shit house. He's done, he's, he's played uh, full contact rugby as a youngster. He's spent time doing sumo. He started uh, in all Japan in the 70s, you know, <laughs> in the 70s, yeah, all Japan. <laughs> um, and then he, he, you know, as we said, they went over to um, he spent time in, in Canada with Andre. There's a connection bonded at the beginning, as we mentioned, a colossal, colossal connection, you could say, co you could indeed say that. <laughs> uh, and then he spent time in Puerto Rico, and uh, you know, he's gained his reputation of just being a hard, solid nutter who is. <laughs> wonderful to watch wrestle yeah there was something special about the way he moved around in his style of wrestling because of the things like the thrust kicks and the things that he threw into his arsenal it wasn't just wild hard man just body slamming and clubbing people that like you could maybe associate with that 80s style of wwf you know and mm. um, there was more about me he wrestled he he had that interesting look where he wasn't a giant but he was well built and yeah he wasn't yeah. small but against, obviously, you know, when he stood in the, 
alongside Andre and stuff, he's going to always be perceived as quite small. He wasn't, you know, he, he was um, he was shorter than some of the other big lads that were there, but he moved, and some of the moves he, he performed were that of a smaller man, you know, of somebody who had a bit more flight about him. Yeah, they, they knew what they had with Haku and a team like the Islanders. I mean, putting them in a feud with the Bulldogs... Absolutely. Over, I mean, I mean, you know, it was it was prime eighties WWF having them run off with Matilda, and then have it. I mean, it, it was perfect for. I mean, Haku always looked like not uncomfortable, but I don't think it was really his role to not just be the hard bastard. You know what I mean? Yeah, but Tama yeah, yeah. is really again arrogant and cocky, bringing out the invisible dog lead and everything as well. And and, and a lot of people our age um, saw WrestleMania four, and everyone knows that storyline. Even if you've seen nothing else surrounding it, you know, the storyline was big enough that they could have a match at WrestleMania 4 with uh, Coco and Bobby Heenan in there as well. And uh, it was placed quite prominently on the on the card and, dare I say, you know, woke the crowd up a little bit because, you know, it was a long night of tournament matches, um, <laughs> to was, say the least. It was a long night. Ooh, uh, so it was. So not long after that, and, you know, uh, Bobby Heenan brings out uh, CVFE as the third Islander, and that was kind of the end because uh, Tama was gone by that point, and CVFE didn't really... I mean, he was kind of um, the poor lad. He was kind of uh, brought in as the next Jimmy Snooker, and everyone... He was introduced as from the Fiji Islands, and everyone's in Madison Square Garden's like, oh, Snooker's coming back, CVFE, and it's like... Yes. <laughs> it's true. Um, it, it's, it was a shame for him. like, But um, so Haku is kind of left without anything to do um, after the Islanders, you know, unceremoniously just end. It's never really mentioned on TV. There's no face turn or anything like that. But Haku stays about. And you could say, luckily for Haku, King Harley Race has a near life-threatening injury. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like Holly Ray's head was through the table on Saturday night's main event against Hogan and ruptures his stomach and you know has to be out for months and you know and he gives up his crown. So the perfect person to have and it's just it's ridiculous having Haku sat on that throne with the crown. But it is one of the more iconic images of the eighties and actually the attire that Chella is going to be making in uh in this line so it could be argued that this is the best known era of haku in the wwf yes um so they, they do the they do the coronation which is as over the top as you could possibly want and haku uh with his crown he, you can tell he's having such a laugh with it because it is ridiculous <laughs> he becomes king haku never has to walk to the ring for the next year because he's uh carried um on the you know above everyone's heads all the slaves carrying the uh the throne to the ring he was the first king to do that and um haku was you know just on tv a lot and just want again one of the bigger names of that of that era and then uh harley race actually returns and has one of my favorite matches of all time against haku at royal rumble 89 where if again if you want to just see two old hard lads just brain each other uh, this is the match, and it has possibly my favourite Haku super kick ever because Harley Race will take a kick; he doesn't care. Um, <laughs> so Haku nearly takes his head off and <laughs> becomes the undisputed. It's great though because Bobby Heenan manages both of them, and he's kind of taken side depending yeah. on using control. <laughs> um, so that was Harley's last match in the WWF, and again though. I think it speaks to the respect that someone like Harley Race has for Haku, where he's willing to put him over on his way out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Haku, you know, then goes on to feud with guys like Hercules, who would just turn on the Heenan family and uh, eventually would lose the crown to Jim Duggan on TV uh, in a in a highly featured match. And uh, Duggan would then go on to feud with Savage, but they had something in mind for Haku. And that was the colossal connection with Andre. Absolutely, absolutely. And what a connection it was. <laughs> so, I mean, Andre. I think anyone was. Johnny, uh, he, he was on that tiltering point, wasn't he? Uh, yeah. And I think it's fair to say they needed somebody who could, who was an established tag team, um, you know, performer who could easily carry 
his partner if needed and the looked no further than Haku and I think that was the right decision and I think it was a great tag team and obviously Heenan being involved as well it was just going to be leaps of fun Oh yeah, I mean uh, the, the matches with Demolition not yeah. just the WrestleMania 6 match but that feud because the Brain Busters had left I mean it, it's a chance for Andre to have a WWF title which is always you know, it's a special thing and it's a sign of respect and Again, you have Haku kind of taking care of Andre and just... Well, they, they beat Demolition on a Superstars episode, didn't they, as well? It wasn't like an actual... Um, it wasn't, you know, a, a, it wasn't a big event that they, that, they, that they won the titles at. Yeah, which, I mean, you know, uh, was quite rare uh, because, you know, TV title changes and all that. So it was, it was a big deal. Uh, but I do feel like, like they had to potentially work on the fly because... Powers of Pain had, you know, come and gone by that point. They weren't going to be in contendership because they'd had that feud with Demolition. But you yeah. needed a legitimate threat. And who yeah. is a bigger threat than Andre and Haku as a tag team? And again, it's one of those things that when someone finally beats them, that's then made completely. I mean, look at Hogan at Mania 3. Um, you know, obviously he was huge by that point anyway, but the, that particular win over Andre just cemented him. Um, I always think back to as well earlier on in the year at um, Royal Rumble '89. I'm right in thinking. I'm, I'm thinking on the fly. Uh, Axe and Smash were one and two. Yes, Is that right. They were one and two in the Rumble, and then when the opportunity came, Andrea was Andrea was early on. He was number three. It's, he was number it's three. My, that's right. One and then they both like entrances. Smash. Smash kind of pulls Axe back as if say, "Let's stop battering each other. <laughs> let's uh, let's let's go for the big lad." And, yeah, it's uh, one- one of my favourite. That's entrances. carried on. That whole concept carried on to the end of the year in December when they when uh, demolition lost the belt. Sandra, it's almost like a bit of retaliation for what happened earlier on. Absolutely, yeah. You can watch stuff in context now and just see little seeds being planted. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and who eliminated Andre the next year? Rumble ninety demolition. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So like together, but as I was saying, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But not like, at I all. Just, not I at love all. Andre's entrance as number three because the crowd just go. Whoa. Like you know, because it's big lad come to the ring and um, oh, great stuff. But yeah, I just love the way that Smash kind of pulled that because it's the first time I'd ever seen that. Like I remember seeing it at a Rumble. Uh, well, I know they'd only been gone a couple of years, but it's the first time that the, the one of the most memorable of like let's stop fighting, like <laughs> we don't need to look what's coming. Kind, of, you know what I mean? Like let's team together. We're a tag team after all. Um, and I always found it baffling when tag teams would just wouldn't just you know they kicking each other's head and just like you've only got a minute lads just <laughs> just hold on just stand still for a bit reserve your it's, energy like it's you're iconic, a tag team though. I know yeah. and it's, it's great um, but yeah carry on oh yeah so because I, I mean there's so much that Haku did in WWF and obviously <laughs> we're, we're limited on time so we're not going to go through every single thing but like things that certainly stuck out in my mind um so Haku uh you know WrestleMania six happens, it's the rematch against Demolition, and Andre doesn't really get in the ring legally. Mm-hmm. And Haku and that's probably due to his health, and Haku takes, you know, um basically carries the match against Demolition. And Haku accidentally kicks Andre and Demolition win the tag titles and have one of my favorite reactions from a crowd of all time. Yeah. Um, and I hate it on any dubbed over version where they just use the generic rock music because that explosion when they beat Andre and Haku is incredible. When and even got the reaction the... of Demolition themselves as well, bear in mind. Oh. They're, they're kind of just like, we've done it, kind of like actually that, that whole kind of can't believe we've done it kind of look across the faces was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm assuming they knew that this was going to be Andre's last appearance for a good while. I mean, it was it wasn't his last match in WWF, funnily enough, because he wrestled on the UK tour the next year, teaming with the Rockers, which a lot of people don't know. Yeah, um, you're right. it, you did. it was a it was a couple of matches, and he did the thing with Giant Barber as well. Uh, but I think people probably expected Andre against Haku eventually, because you know Andre turned the way on they Haku. Split. The way the yeah. way the way that Andre started slapping Heenan after Heenan had started slapping Andre and blaming <laughs> Andre and Haku tried to make the save and Andre made short work of him too. Um, shame, Colossus connection crumbled at that point. But you're right. I think everybody, including myself, assumed that we were about to see some kind of feud of some description, uh, if nothing else, between Andre and 
um, Heenan. Yeah. Um, and Haku being fodder number one or whatever, you know, uh, however it was going to go. Well, I mean, I, I can totally believe that that was going to happen because if you look at Haku's 1990, he was the first to have a TV match against uh, Warrior when yeah. he won the WWF title and yeah. they went round the loop and everything. And he was also the first to face Tornado, mm-hmm. um, you know, on the house show loop as well. He was always so reliable. Like, I mean, he criminally was left off pay-per-views during this time. Yeah. Um, but he was always going to have the best house show match of the night or, or, or certainly put someone over and I think that did kind of become Haku's kind of role at that point he was a survivor series and again this speaks to how uh, reliable he is because Rude was going to be on that team and he was replaced by Haku and that was the first instance of him and Barbarian really teaming up yeah, and because um, it was going to be rude against Bossman for that feud, which would end up with perfect for the Intercontinental Belt, and they were going to go through Haku and Barbarian as well. Um, but instead, you know, the, the two hard lads became a tag team at that point, That's right. and um, definitely an underutilized. When you look at what they did with. Uh, Barbarian and Ming in WCW, where they just used them incredibly. I mean, all uh, we're not going to really cover much of uh, WCW because we're talking specifically Haku here. But yes, the WCW point, run, yeah. um, every look that he had under the name Ming, it was incredibly over, and they used him so well because it was just be mental and brave people, and that well, got it, over. Like, it always surprised me when, when like again, we won't go into that's why we're sort of covering right now. But yeah. when when he rejoined WWF later on, in a, you know, in the 2000s as Meng, yeah. and I was like, I, 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 I really wanted him to transform back to Haku. Well, <laughs> like, no, he, he, and he, I love he, Meng, don't get me wrong, but I just wanted, I was just so, my heart belonged with Haku rather than it did with Meng, although I knew that Meng was obviously class. I just there was something about Haku. I just, I just wanted to bring him back as Haku, but it was what it was. Well, he came back with the name Haku. Um, but they used the the look of used Meng. the the, the Meng, Yes, yeah, that's what I mean. Sorry, they, they came back. He came back as Meng with Haku's name. And he came the, back as Meng. Do you know what I mean? But it I, didn't last long but, enough. There was there was a first blood tag team match with Taker and Kane against uh, Rikishi and Meng. Uh, sorry, Haku on the Raw as well, and it didn't last nearly long enough. Uh, their usage of Haku, but he ended up on the Raw video game. Uh, it did, yes. <laughs> which is uh which is wonderful. And uh I mean I'm assuming he was on some WCW games, but that was definitely his only uh WWF game, uh until someone writes in and corrects me, but I think that is correct. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean before he went to WCW as well, though, he had another stint in uh, Japan and Mexico for that ninety two and ninety four period of time. He did. I mean, and, and I've got to say, the first match I ever saw of Haku was against British Bulldog, and it's on the Mega Matches tape. And again, he, you know, lost gracefully to the British Bulldog to put him over as well. So beating Haku meant something. It really yeah. did. Um, especially when you look at his reputation in the garden, going back a good few years at that point. But yeah, the, by that point, like with Steamboat, etc., he was kind of there to lose matches, which is a yeah. shame. Um, and he lasted a couple of minutes in the Royal Rumble, but he it was always great because he turns on Flair and Heenan's like, just what are you doing? Like your mental case, don't turn on Flair. But um, and he looked really dangerous as well as he should. But uh, like you say, he went back to Japan and Mexico and wrestled for the Super World of Sports, and, and there was yeah. a crossover with the WWF. And because again, going back to Tenru, he basically ran that company, and there was a crossover, and then. Haku, I guess, liked it so much that he went to work there full time for a little bit. He did indeed. He did indeed. He sacked WWF on, went over there pretty much exclusively. He had a bit of a stint, I think, with New Japan for a little while as well. Um, did a lot of stuff in, in Mexico. And it was just, he basically he was well traveled, you know. Um, but we won't go properly into um, him returning to the US and joining WCW in this episode. I think that's deserved of his own episode. And am I right in thinking as well, Pablo, that you're doing a bit of a deep dive at the moment into WCW's later years? Yeah, we're doing a 2000 uh, series of every pay-per-view, WWF, WCW, and eventually ECW. And one of the names that always comes up is Meng, especially during that hardcore division. uh, When he was feuding with, like, Screaming Norman Smiley, and he was shit scared of him. And... uh, 
you know, or again, he he just went through periods when he'd put that Tongan death grip on just anyone he could get his hands on, and it would always get one of the pops of the night. Um, you know, wrestling fans really appreciated Haku Meng, um, and it's when presented as how he should be, just a dangerous bastard. Then you know you you got your best out of him, basically. I think completely. I'll tell you what. One of the while I remember one of the funniest things I've seen in ages when you see fan art and people doing sort of comedy art and things like that, and you know on on different social media and forums, you get like sort of um, what's it like sort of uh, Microsoft Paint challenge draw a wrestler with Microsoft Paint and things <laughs> like that, or cro- crossover between a film and a wrestler if wrestlers were in films and things like that. Mm. I saw an absolutely beautiful one, and I, I don't know if it was on the UKFF forum or something like that a while back. But it was <laughs> it was to do with uh, wrestlers in films and the, you know like the pun of the wrestler's name in a film, right? Or, or, or a TV show or, or whatever it might be. And it was just it was a picture of Meng's face. Uh, well, it, should I say there was two and a half of them, two and a half Meng. <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely glorious. It was like mm. the two and a half men font style, just with Meng's face screaming. <laughs> just two and a half of them, <laughs> half just split exactly down there. Oh, it was great. Oh, I can, can, that. Whoever that was, shout out. It was class. <laughs> it still tickles me now. Can I say about this, um, the new figure coming out from Cella? Uh, I mean, from the blueprints, the likeness is incredible. Um, not seen since his days of his LGN, in my opinion. And but the thing is with the LGN, it's not King Haku either. Um, yes, Jax did a King Haku figure, but for whatever reason they give him a screaming head, which he never did as King Haku. He was more straight faced. Um and it was so they could use this use the head again for an actual Meng figure. That's right. But they they got the skin tones all out of whack. Like you would think there were different nationalities just looking at the Haku and Meng figure. Um and they were just sadly rushed and just not nearly as good as they could have been but they're, um, they're very different characters and people forget that like if you yeah. think about me I mean, yes they wrestled similar etc cetera, etc cetera, but they're very very different characters in terms of the you know the persona that they, they are in the ring haku is definitely more of a silent assassin you know he's yeah. the bodyguard kind of role uh whereas meng's a screaming lunatic kind of character <laughs> Um, and and they are they're very different. So I agree fully with you that they didn't capture his likeness at all originally with uh, WWE's figures. And, um, and thankfully, Chellas have they've nailed it from what I've seen of the. They really, they really have, and um, you know, I've got to say the because King Haku had two different uh, outfits. One was a lighter purple with white around where the knees are, and one's darker purple. Now, Jax, in my opinion, got the wrong tone of purple for their figure. Um, it's too bright and you know it's again it potentially rushed because the skin colors are all out of whack um and it was the end of the line and they were kind of rushing figures out whereas this cello figure is having the love and attention to detail that it deserves and yeah like it's um it's the clothesline arm isn't it with the almost like a tongan death grip but that's what we've seen so far i mean it's it's looking great it's looking great and it's you know I'm looking forward to the next stage as I always do because Brian Tippy, the designer, the artist for Cella, smashes it out of the park every single design he's done for them so far. And I know this is a Cella Love Fest kind of uh, show, but it is because it's a Cella podcast. We wouldn't but, be doing it. We wouldn't be doing it if we didn't love these figures. Put it that absolutely. way. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It would be a waste of everybody's time. There'd be no point. And we, we're doing this because it is a hype show. That's what it's all about. We're here to to promote the quality work that they're doing and as you said before we've had them on a couple of times under the show we've left it until now this far down the line to see what what figures they're bringing out to see what kind of quality the figures are that they're bringing out and what quality the designs are to link up with those guys because they're the real deal it's as simple as that cella they're smashing it and they've got figures in your hands as we speak so what i will say pablo Yes. Is that this episode, and I'm sure the people who have clicked on the link that Cheller have uh, put out today, um, this is in. What's the word I'm thinking of? It's connected to an announcement that they've just made today. Yes, it is. 
they have just announced that they've also signed Tangaloa. Now, Tanga wrestles for New Japan. Not only is Tangaloa Haku's son, you may also remember him as Camacho from WWE, NXT, SmackDown. He's also been in TNA. I think he did a stint in Ring of Honor. Camacho, mm. who wrestled in WWE, um, was one of Tangaloa's previous gimmicks. And Chella have announced they're making a figure of him. That's great. Like, Incredible. In, 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 yeah, it, it just talk about like bang for your buck in terms of like dealing with Haku that you you know it opens the doors to his son being you know second generation and all that kind of thing it's just it's it's great it it makes perfect sense it makes perfect sense and also because there's a lot of people that the purest OWF fans completely understand that you've got people who are purists to other promotions again completely understand that the fact that they've secured um a new currently under contract with New Japan uh, NJPW. Mm. They've got a guy who's wrestling for them on the books now, and he's going to be coming out in Hasbro figure form. Again, something for everybody, and mm-hmm. that's what I really enjoy about Chella, and that's what I've enjoyed about them so far. But again, we talked about it in Series One, everything from Hayabusa, Dynamite Kid, Blue Meanie, Josh Chernoff, Bull Nakano, Nick Aldis. Ethan Page, that's something for everybody. There's somebody from all over. There's somebody from different regions, different time frames, and wonderful figures. Every one of them fit well. They look well together. This one with Tangaloa, it's just great. The fact that you're getting a father and son sort of duet <laughs> is yeah. wonderful to see. Um, and it's great. I just, I, I can't wait. I'm obviously going to be pre-ordering it as soon as uh, the opportunity comes to do that. But um, yeah. Nice one, Chella, and securing yet another sort of really interesting avenue. Not just a different name, but it's a new avenue that's kind of opening up with, wow, we've got a new Japan guy on the Chella roster. Yeah, it just it makes me excited for the future with Chella. I mean, and if I was still playing with figures, I mean, just dream matches. Uh, and, you know, because back in the day, the Hasbro range was the names there was a lot of names but there was also a lot of names that did do haku being again one of the main ones certainly um so you would either use another figure like a non-wrestling figure and pretend he was someone else or yes, you, like i would use like nails and pretend he was bobby heenan because he had the you know and I'd use <laughs> chitara and pretend she was sensational sherry and stuff <laughs> <laughs> so like you know there's there's the chance now to just Go outside of, like, you know, imagination is, you know, you're only limited by your imagination now, sort of thing, with, like, the amount of different names that you can have. And hopefully it's not the last female. I mean, bear in mind, they're making the first female-style Hasbro figure. They made the first announcer-style Hasbro figure. Um, And, you know, Chella are showing that, you know, they are very forward-thinking and are willing to work outside of, you know, the old Hasbro logistics in terms of, like, who should be made, who shouldn't be made. And, uh, you know, the scaling is great. The skin tones are spot on. Uh, Again, the detail is great. Um, And as we mentioned earlier with the Nick Aldis figure, there's variations. They're not scared of of using different colours for different outfits, potentially different parts if it's required. Um, So... Keep that in mind when you're ordering figures that there might potentially in the future be different variations of that figure and limited runs of them, etc., etc. Um, if you want to see your character in different attire. Where the class of the past meets the greatness of the present. Nick Aldis and Chella Toys are back with figure collections. Wait a minute, that's us. Chella Toys and figure collections are offering this exclusive Nick Aldis Megastars Wrestling Figure Limited with just 100 pieces. This is the first exclusive for figure collections and the first throwback style figure with a little bit of color, if you know what I mean. Buy the Nick Aldis Limited to 100 pieces today at shop.figurecollections.com. You can also pre-order the rest of the Cella Toys Wrestling Megastars line at shop.figurecollections.com. Get the word out there as well, because, you know, there'll be people out there who 
don't know about Chella, who don't know that there's going to be a Haku figure made. I mean, good lord, like, you know that needs to be spread far and wide. That there's a Bull Nakano figure being made, um, and all of the other names that have been mentioned as well. Spread the word because uh, you know the more people interested, I think it just opens up a lot of avenues for what Chella can do going forward. I can't wait to see what else is announced. I can't wait to have. Uh, further announcements sprung upon us. I can't wait to see the artwork of Brian Tippy. Speaking of Brian, I can't wait for him to come on the podcast in the very, very near future yet again to talk a bit more about us because we've got something quite fun planned with Brian and a little segment he might be doing with us as time goes on. We hope that you've enjoyed this deep dive into Haku. Um, it's kind of one of those ones where it's like a glossed over deep dive, <laughs> but we've got an hour out of Haku, and uh, you know that's that's part one realistically because who knows we might look at a, making a, a Meng episode in the future we'll see how it goes but thank you very much for listening if you want a again pre-order from Chella go to chellatoys.net check them out on Twitter at chellatoys Instagram chellatoys check us out on Twitter at Grapple Arcade and obviously check our website out for all of our other podcasts at bbgwrestling.com where you'll hear myself and Pablo doing deep dives into all sorts of nonsensory, including all WWF home video releases. Pablo's also doing a deep dive at the moment into the year 2000 and promotions that are linked with that, including WWF, WCW, and potentially ECW as well. So that's loads of fun. Loads of interviews with some of your favorite wrestlers from the 90s as well. So, yeah, check it out. Hope you're well. Hope you're safe. Take care, everybody. Speak to you all soon. See you soon. <laughs>